Digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website. This is Outlook, the talking newspaper for Coventry. Hello and welcome to Outlook. I'm Stella Roberts and this edition is being recorded on Wednesday the 22nd of March 2023. Coming up, we have Margaret talking about the Herbert, our art gallery and museum. Sheila instructing us on which foods to keep in the fridge. And Ali's confessing her passion for an ideal man. Sue has part two of her piece about the Just William books. And Keith tells us about Sir John Moore's of Littlewood's football pools fame. We also have our usual features, news from the Resource Centre, Sport and Postbag. All that later, but first Elaine and I will be reviewing the past week's news. Outlook News Commuters face weeks of travel chaos as bus drivers begin strike action in Coventry. National Express has warned that most services will not be running from last Monday the 20th of March. A limited number of services, which mostly serve University Hospital, will be running during the strike action, the company confirmed. National Express urged people not to try to travel on its buses unless they really need to. A total of over 3,000 bus drivers will be striking after they voted to refuse a revised pay deal in a ballot held over Friday and Saturday. Strikes will now be taking place daily, bringing widespread disruption to the West Midlands. A number of services are still running, but check before venturing out. An improved offer of 14.3% has been made, but the pay deal was voted down by 71% of drivers, according to Unite. Unite General Secretary Sharon Graham said, National Express is an extremely wealthy company and makes considerable profits from the hard work of our members, who are not paid enough for the difficult and stressful job they do. The company must come back with an offer our members can accept. David Bradford, the Managing Director of National Express West Midlands, penned an open letter after strike action was confirmed. He wrote, I'm disappointed to say that our drivers have rejected our 14.3% pay offer and that means there will be a strike starting on Monday, March the 20th. Sadly, we don't know how long the strike will last. I am sorry for the disruption this is going to cause. Services will be very limited and our advice is to avoid travel by National Express bus if possible and check our website for live updates on which routes are running. Coventry's bid to become the UK's first home of very light railway is literally now on track. An innovative ultra-thin track has been installed at Whitley Depot for testing. The unique track system will now be stress-tested by heavy goods vehicles as the city hits a milestone in its bid to become the first city in the UK to have its own very light rail, VLR, line, as part of a £1.3 billion travel plan. 
Council bosses say that by installing a short section of track at Whitley Depot, the team will be able to measure its performance under extreme conditions. This is a huge milestone in the creation of the VLR system, which will use lightweight battery-powered electric vehicles and will operate without overhead cables. The new testing track at the depot has vibration sensors which take measurements 10 times a second and weight in motion sensors will weigh vehicles while they move across the track. This data will be collected for a year and fed into a digital twin computer model allowing WMG at the University of Warwick to evaluate the performance of the track over time. Councillor Jim O'Boyle said, The tracks we've installed here at Whitley Depot represent hundreds of hours of innovation that have taken place right here in Coventry. They were designed from day one to minimise disruption to people and businesses and we're excited to see their strengths demonstrated in a real-world environment. Our own council road team laid them too, which is great, and supports our aim of ensuring CVLR creates and safeguards jobs in our city. Transport innovation has the opportunity to really support a zero carbon economy and Coventry is leading the green industrial revolution. Not only will we be the the UK's first all-electric bus city, we have already installed more electric vehicle charge points than anywhere outside London and we're investing in new fully segregated cycleways to give more people greener options to move about our city. The Whitley Depot track test site is part of a comprehensive range of testing planned to demonstrate the longevity of this track. A length of track has been laid at the University of Warwick to test insulation and soon another track will be laid at the Very Light Rail National Innovation Centre in Dudley to test the CVLR vehicle on the track for the first time. Coventry North MP Tywoa Watamai has called for an official parliamentary debate about the collapse of Coventry City of Culture Trust. Administrators for the doomed City of Coventry Trust have started selling the company's assets as creditors wait to hear how much money they will be paid back. The trust went into administration last month on the 28th of February, after weeks of uncertainty over its financial woes. Fifty jobs in the city were lost, and the planned three-year legacy programme for the City of Culture Year is now in doubt. Muswatomise says that the people of Coventry deserve answers and transparency, following the trust going into administration. Taxpayers now wait to hear how much of a £1 million Coventry Council loan to the Trust it will be getting back now the charity has gone bust. In total, the Trust owes some £1.6 million to the authority. A fire sale of the Trust's assets was launched in an attempt to recoup the money owed, including its TikTok account. Speaking in the House of Commons on Thursday, the MP said... Fifty people have lost their jobs as administrators begin to rifle through the remnants of Coventry's City of Culture Trust. Not only have very hard-working constituents' livelihoods disappeared,
But a much-loved local gallery, the real store, will have to close its doors very soon. So can we have a debate in government time on the efficacy of Coventry City of Culture Trust to ensure that there is proper oversight? Coventry City councillors have previously said that just 150,000 of the loan is expected to be repaid. Last Saturday, Mazawatamai tweeted, Following my question this week, I have now submitted an application to hold an adjournment debate about the collapse of the Coventry City of Culture Trust in Parliament. I hope we will be successful in securing this debate. People in Coventry deserve answers and transparency. A number of staff at Coventry College say they have no confidence in its leaders after a critical Ofsted report saw the college banned from taking on new apprentices. UCU union members at the college claim it failed to act on red flags regarding its apprenticeship provision before the inspection. They claim staff morale is at an all-time low, with dozens having left or set to leave the college this year. Union members are also concerned about possible damage to the college's reputation as a result of the January Ofsted report. Inspectors graded the college requires improvement overall and inadequate for apprenticeships. Earlier this month, the college announced that around 150 apprentices are set to move to Warwickshire College Group to finish their programmes. A letter sent by the, the college's UCU branch to governors this week states the membership no longer have confidence in the chair of governors or the college principal. This is specifically because there was adequate time to avoid the reputational damage now suffered by the college, the letter says. The vast majority of branch members backed the union's no-confidence vote, sources told the local democracy reporting service. Some college staff believe the loss of apprenticeships could have been averted if this area had been managed better over the past two years. The UCU letter said... It is the view of UCU members that red flags were ignored by managers. Indeed, there were significant failings. Experienced, long-serving staff left. Apprenticeships, particularly in construction, suffered neglect and reported issues were ignored or unresolved. An anonymous member of staff told the local Democracy reporting service, during this time the college has lost PSV, hospitality and catering, plumbing, electrical installation, engineering, nursery and other great facilities. Responding to the issue, a spokesperson for Comtree College said, We recognise that this has been a difficult few weeks for staff at the college and we are listening to their concerns. A plaque of thanks was unveiled on Monday to mark University Hospitals Coventry and Warwickshire NHS Trust being granted the freedom of the city. The plaque was unveiled outside the front entrance of the hospital with a short ceremony seeing Trust staff and executives joined by Coventry City Council leader Councillor George Duggins and Lord Mayor Councillor Kevin Mayton. As a thank you for supporting Coventrians through the COVID-19 pandemic last July, UHCWNHS Trust 
was granted freedom by the City Council at an extraordinary general meeting at Coventry Cathedral. The meeting was followed by a service of celebration attended by more than 300 staff. Alongside the Trust's extraordinary response to the pandemic, in December 2020 it was chosen to deliver the world's first COVID-19 vaccine outside a clinical trial. The Trust is the first non-military organisation to receive the honour, last given in 2013 to Coventry's adopted Royal Navy ship HMS Diamond. UHCW Chair Dame Stella Menzies said, To receive this very rare honour was a special moment for everyone associated with UHCW. A spring booster vaccine against COVID-19 is to be offered to residents across the West Midlands at most risk of serious illness from the disease. The Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation, JCVI, has confirmed those over 75 in care homes and over 5 and immune suppressed will be eligible. It will be offered six months after a person's previous dose and NHS England will confirm operational details for the programme in due course. Dr James Chipwaite, health protection consultant leading on respiratory infections for UK Health's West Midlands Services said, We've seen a slight increase in the number of cases of COVID-19 in the last week across the West Midlands region with most in people aged over 65. However, no matter what age you are, if you are clinically more vulnerable to the effects of COVID-19, it's really important that you take up the spring booster when it's offered to you. People who are at increased risk of complications from infection could become extremely unwell if they catch COVID-19 and even end up hospitalised. So to protect yourself and support our NHS, it's vital you get your booster when invited. Professor Wee Sen Lim, chair of the JCVI COVID-19 committee, said, Vaccination remains the best way to protect yourself against COVID-19, and the Spring Booster programme provides an opportunity for those who are at higher risk of severe illness to keep their immunity topped up. This year's spring programme will bridge the gap to the planned booster programme in the autumn, enabling those who are most vulnerable to be well protected throughout the summer. Hundreds of people across Coventry have been offered warm clothes and blankets as the cost of living crisis escalates. It comes as Coventry City Council is set to agree to manage three funds to help residents who are struggling financially. While the government allocations have been welcomed, councillors expressed concern the funding may not be enough given the growing numbers of people forced to rely upon them. Rising food, energy and petrol prices have pushed many households in the city into unprecedented circumstances. Since October 2021, the council has been supporting Coventry households with the cost of food, fuel and related essentials through the Household Support Fund grant provided by the Department for Work and Pensions. Already over a thousand residents have been helped in accessing warm clothing, bedding and blankets. 
491 vulnerable residents have been supported in purchasing essential equipment for their home, and 799 vulnerable residents have been provided with household essentials, such as beds, flooring and broadband. In addition, over 42,000 residents have been supplied with food parcels through the city's food network. A new, a new phase of household support fund, valued at 6.4 million, is now due to commence from the 1st of April 2023, lasting until March 2024, to support Coventry residents. Coventry is continuing to deliver the holiday activities and food programme, and has received an allocation of 1.5 million for the financial year 2023-24. The programme provides free activities, experiences and food for eligible children and young people in the Easter, Summer and Christmas school holidays. Approximately 4,000 vulnerable school-aged children in the city were provided with food during the summer holidays. The Energy Bills Support Scheme is part of the Government's support for domestic energy consumers facing increased bills due to rising energy costs. The scheme is intended to support those customers who do not contract directly with an energy provider, but are nevertheless impacted by increasing energy prices. It will provide support for those customers who have not previously benefited from the scheme, which provided a £400 discount on energy bills for all consumers directly contracting with a domestic energy provider. The Department of Energy estimates that approximately 3,500 households in Coventry will be entitled to the payment and have issued a grant confirming 1.4 million in funding to be administered to those households. A school in Coventry is celebrating receiving its first good Ofsted report grading since 2007. Foxford School and Community Arts College in Longford was rated as requires improvement for more than 15 years before they joined Castle Phoenix Trust. However, under new guidance and management, the school has finally managed to achieve a good rating. Head teacher of Foxford School, Mrs Alison Gallagher, joined in October 2020 during the COVID pandemic, along with several new leaders. The new leadership team has focused on all aspects of improving the school, such as sustained and secure improvements in teaching and learning, student behaviour and attitudes, pastoral care and personal development. Improvements were made all the more impressive due to the disruptive time to the education system with lockdowns and social distancing restrictions. The inspection took place in December 2022, after which Mrs Gallagher spoke about its success. We're thrilled with our Ofsted report and are really pleased that the comments of the inspectors recognise the hard work and progress we have made over the last couple of years. I would like to thank all the students and parents and carers for their continued support and dedication to the school. She also praised the amount of teamwork and hard effort which resulted in the Ofsted judgment, adding, Since I arrived at Foxford, 
The staff, governors and the central team at the Trust have worked with relentless focus, dedication and commitment to ensure our students have the best education. During the inspection, it was noted that students too were keen to recognise the improvements which had been brought about. The report continues, Pupils say that behaviour has improved significantly over time. Pupils behave well in lessons and at break and lunch times. Positive and caring relationships between staff, pupils and sixth form students are commonplace. A woman and three children were taken to hospital after a house fire in Binley. Firefighters rushed to the scene at William McKee Close late last Friday night. Four fire engines were called to the scene. It has since emerged that a woman was injured and she and three children were taken to hospital following the incident. The woman's injuries were not serious, a spokesman for West Midlands Ambulance Service said, and the three children were unharmed and were taken to hospital as a precaution. West Midlands Fire Service said the fire is believed to have started accidentally on the ground floor of a two-storey house. Firefighters from Binley, Canley, Folshill and Coventry attended the incident. A West Midlands Fire Service spokesman said the first appliance arrived within five minutes of being mobilised. This was a fire on the ground floor of a two-storey house. Six firefighters wearing breathing apparatus used two hose reels to extinguish the fire, which is thought to have started accidentally. All residents had evacuated the property prior to our arrival. A West Midlands Ambulance Service spokesman said, We were called by the fire service on Friday following a property fire. One ambulance was sent to the scene where, on arrival, crews found four patients, a woman and three children. The woman was treated for injuries not believed to be serious by ambulance crews before being conveyed to University Hospital Coventry in Warwickshire for further assessments. The three children were assessed by medics at the scene but did not require treatment and were taken to the same hospital as a precaution. A graduate from Coventry University says she finds it insane that she is now an Oscar and BAFTA award winner. 32-year-old Alexandra Sasha Balan, who studied graphic design and illustration, was part of the team behind The Boy, The Mole, The Fox and The Horse, which won the Oscar for Best Animated Short in Los Angeles on March the 13th. The win comes just weeks after she and her colleagues celebrated winning a BAFTA for Best British Short Animation for the same piece of work based on Charlie Mackers's much-loved book. Sasha says her studies at Coventry University prepared her for the hard work that went into the boy, the mole, the fox and the horse, but still finds it hard to believe what she's achieved. During her last six months of her graphic design and illustration course, she tried animation for the first time and fell in love with it, Plus it taught her how to make her final products as clean as possible, as fast as possible, which came into force during her role in the film. Course director for BA Illustration and Animation, Frances Lowe, says Sasha is a born storyteller with a gift for telling stories in pictures that made her a career in animation. 
She was always refining her craft, and it's wonderful to see her hard work and talent being applied to such a beautiful and now renowned project. Her success will undoubtedly provide inspiration to those who come after her. And of course, we're over the moon for her, for being part of an Academy Award-winning animation. We've always been proud of her, Frances said. Her role was as a clean-up artist, which she says meant taking the pencil sketch shots that the animators had completed and rendering them in the ink brush style the book is famous for. It was a very meticulous job, as we had to be very precise with our brush strokes. Some of the feedback we got was, this line needs to be a couple of pixels thinner. The level of detail and the focus it required was intense. There were some days when I could only draw seven frames, but our team was 150 strong, with fantastic animators and artists from all around the world, Sasha said. Sasha has also worked on a variety of other films, including We're Going on a Bear Hunt and Dora the Explorer, as well as adverts for Disney Channel, Sky Sports and ITV's coverage of the 2019 Rugby World Cup. A number of wanted people with links to Coventry have recently been featured on BBC Crime Watch Live. Appeals have been launched to find Abbas Majid, Nicholas Hughes and Paul Langford. Presenter Rav Wilding appealed to the public to help find the three <coughs> men who have links to the city. He urged anyone with details on their whereabouts to contact the show by phone, text or email. Majid and Langford are wanted for fraud offences, while detectives want to speak to Hughes about thefts from hotels in 2020. All three men have links to the West Midlands. Appealing for the whereabouts of Nicholas Hughes, Rav said, Police in North Yorkshire want to talk to him in connection with two incidents of theft at hotels in January and February 2020. He is 49, originally from Coventry, but is known to have links in Scotland and the north of England. Rav also appealed for help to find 24-year-old Abbas Majid. He has been charged with conspiracy to commit fraud, but disappeared before his trial. Rav said, he has been charged with conspiracy to commit fraud relating to a spate of courier frauds across the north of England, but disappeared before his trial. He is of Afghan descent and speaks with a West Midlands accent. He has a prominent beard which may well have been shaved off. He has connections to the Netherlands and known associates in the Coventry area. Another wanted face featured on the show was Paul Langford. He has been charged with multiple fraud offences but failed to appear in court. Detectives are now on the hunt for the fraudster who has links to Coventry and the West Midlands. A drone has been circling the skies across parts of Kersley this week. Kersley Parish Council issued a warning to residents about the four-day drone survey which started on Monday. The commercial drones are being used to look at the area planned for the Kersley Link Road. Coventry City Council Highways Design Team have commissioned the use of the drones to capture 3D information of the area to be used as part of the plans 
for sections of Kersley Link Road. It is reportedly the first time the council has used LIDAR drones as part of survey work. The drone flies between 40 to 60 metres above ground level and is remotely operated by a team of surveyors from Watery Lane and Prologis Park, the parish council said. All permits are in place and we have been working with the survey team to ensure that all the data captured is relevant and in accordance with the rules around CCTV and surveillance. This is the first time Coventry has used LIDAR for survey work and we hope that the success will assist with projects all over the city. Coventry is set to get three new average speed cameras. It's hoped the plans will slow drivers down and reduce the number of crashes on the city's roads. The roads where the speed cameras are planned to be introduced are Hollyhead Road, Osley Old Road and Allard Way. The City Council said there is evidence to suggest that speed cameras reduce the severity and number of crashes and will make the routes safer for all users. The cameras are due to be switched on at the end of this month. Councillor Patricia Heatherton, Cabinet Member for City Services, said We have shown with the other average speed equipment schemes we have introduced across the city that these cameras work to reduce the severity and number of personal injuries. Road safety is a priority for the Council and drivers should be getting used to these schemes by now and realise how irresponsible speeding is unacceptable. Avoidable collisions caused by speed and driving dangerously affects many people, so anything done to reduce this is great news for all residents. Unlike other speed cameras, which just catch a car speeding at a given point, average speed cameras record the registration of the car and calculate the speed over a certain distance by measuring the time it takes to get from one point to the next. That means they can cover a larger stretch of road, which proponents say makes them more effective in reducing driver's speed. Councillor Gavin Lloyd said, No one wants to be responsible for causing injury to others, so the introduction of these cameras will hopefully make the irresponsible motorists wake up to the fact that they can cause life-changing accidents. Just by slowing down and being aware of all others around them will make the city safer for us all. A quarter of a million pound road improvements for Exor has been given the green light. Approval has been given to two highway schemes on the B113, the B4113 Wilson's Lane Long Ford. Both are fully developer funded and will make improvements to the stretch of road that links Bedworth into Coventry. The first is for a ghost island, an area of road surface marked with cross hatching to separate traffic or reduce speed and footway. It will see a new right turn lane into the Longford Road and widening of the footway of approximate value £213,000. The second is for temporary access in the form of a drop curb. The improvements are being made after a planning application was submitted to Nuneaton and Bedworth Borough Council 
by iReef UK Logistics Propco Limited in respect of land southeast of Wilson's Lane, Longford Road in Exhall. Planning consent was granted with the go-ahead for the development of 6,953 square metres of B1 light industry for parking, access and landscaping, but there were conditions that required works to be carried out in the public highway. These are the right turn lane and widening of the footway, as well as temporary access in the form of a dropped curb vehicle crossover. These have been rubber stamped by Warwickshire County Council and now procurement exercises will be undertaken to find the firm who will carry out the works. A big screen will be erected in Coventry to show King Charles III's coronation in May, the government has announced. Big screens will be put up in more than 30 locations across the UK to ensure thousands have the chance to gather together to watch Charles and Queen Consort Camilla crowned on May the 6th. There will be screenings across all four nations of the UK in a show of patriotism that will cost Whitehall more than one million. Coventry's viewing platform will be erected in Broadgate. The city is one of nine places in the Midlands that will receive a giant screen. World leaders are set to descend on London nearly 70 years after the late Queen's coronation in June 1953. Culture Secretary Lucy Fraser said, The coronation will be a magical moment that brings people together to celebrate the best of Britain over a special weekend in May. These big screens in major locations in towns and cities in the four nations of the UK will make it easier for everyone to take part and have a memorable experience to mark this exciting and historic event. Some screening sites will also show the Coronation Concert, which is taking place at Windsor Castle on Sunday, May the 7th. Councils across Coventry, Warwickshire and the entire UK will host their own community events to mark the landmark day. Across the weekend, tens of thousands of Coronation big lunches and street parties will also be held. Further screen sites will be announced in due course, the government has said. Outlook News Okay, well thanks there to my fellow reader. We had a marathon today, didn't we? We did. (laughs) Uh, I've got some times for sunset and sunrise for today. It sunsets about 6.20pm. And it will be sunrise tomorrow at 6.10am. And don't forget to put your clocks forward one hour next Saturday, the 25th of March, because that's the start of British summertime. We now have you in the studio with news from the Resource Centre. Thank you, Stella. Oh, I'm so pleased to hear that summertime is co- British summertime is coming. Mm. I much prefer those lighter, longer evenings. Well, hello, everybody. Um, Last week or two, or, you know, going back a bit more, we've been banging on a little bit about the upcoming election and um, new arrangements that are now in place for voter ID. And I had a long chat with the council's electoral services yesterday that brought up some interesting information. And they're really making some efforts 
to ensure uh, or to make sure that people with visual impairments can take part. Uh, so that's what I want to talk to you about mostly today. Um, now, there are three ways to vote in an election, um, in person at the polling station, by post, or by using a proxy. Now, if you go to a polling station, you will need to have photo ID with you. Um, and the accepted forms of ID are a British or U European or Commonwealth passport, or a, a British or European photo driving license, um, a blue badge, a lot of you will have those, I think. An older person's bus pass or, a or disabled person's bus pass. Um, an Oyster 60 plus card, though I think that's more London centric. Um, a Freedom Pass. Um, an identity card bearing the proof of age standard scheme hologram. It's called a pass card. Actually, it's mostly the kids who have those so they can drink in bars. Um, a biometric immigration document. Um, a Ministry of Defence Form 90, which is a defence identity card, um, or a national identity card um, issued by a European Economic Area State. Now, you will only need to show one form of photo ID, but it does need to be the original and not a photocopy. Now, if you've had photo ID, so like a, an old passport or everything, if, even if it's out of date, as long as the picture still looks like you, and the name, your name is the same as uh, what is on that passport, that old passport, you can still use that. Or, you know, same with an old photo driving license as well. So if you've got an out-of-date photo ID, same name, still recognisable as you, then you can use that as well. So, but if you don't have any of those things, um, you can apply for a free voter ID document, which is known as a voter authority certificate. Um, so, uh, you know, now, you need to be registered uh, to vote before you apply for a voter authority uh, certificate. Um, and if you need to apply, I would honestly suggest uh, come and talk to one of us, um, one, a member of staff uh, here at the centre, and we will help you to do it. We'll need to take a picture of you, but we do have the technology. The deadline for making an application for a voter authority certificate is 5pm on the 25th of April, which I think, um, I suppose it's a week, uh, two weeks before the, before the election anyway. Now, uh, when you're in the polling station itself, they will have a large print version um, of the list of candidates available for you to look at. Uh, now, you can, you can also have one of the officials read you the list or if you're with someone else who's guiding you, they can do it too. But you would still have to vote on a standard voting slip. Now, they do have tactile voting devices which fit over the paper um, so that you can get your X in, in, in the box that you want. And they're also marked up with Braille for those who need it. So these are a bit like those uh, signature strips you use for checks or whatever. So it's a, it's a cut-out box that you would then, um, I suppose you'd sort of count down, you know, if you know that your candidate is the third box down or whatever, then you can put the cross, cross in there. Um, now, they are working on an audio list of candidates in each ward that can be played to you or that um, you can access yourself through a mobile phone, but that might not be ready by the time of the local elections in May. It should be for subsequent elections. But also, if you have an app like Envision or Seeing AI on your smartphone, um, that will also read out the um, information to you as well. And those are really, uh, really good things to uh, to do it'll help you with all sorts of other you know, all sorts of other areas as well like looking at prices in shops and what have you
Anyway, uh, I, dig- I digress. Um, now, you can, if you want, ask your guide, if you have one, or the, provi- or the presiding officer to put the cross where you tell them on the ballot paper. Um, in which case, you know, either your guide or the presiding officer just has to fill in a quick declaration form to say that they're doing this uh, by request or whatever. It's a, it's a little bit of an additional thing, but, you know, it's not to worry about. It's a very quick thing, and you don't have to do it more, more, more importantly. Basically, the message is, um, if you're going to a polling station, if you need a bit of help, ask and you shall receive. Um, now, uh, you can also register to vote by post, which I know a lot of people do. Um, you may have someone at home who can help you do that, um, or, or you may be able to use assistive technology on computers uh, to do that yourself as well. I know a lot of people who attend the centre vote this way. If you want to apply for a postal vote, um, of course, we will help you do it um, if, if you need it. And the deadline for that is, the f- is 5 p.m. on the 18th of April. So you have to leave a little bit more time. You can also nominate a proxy. So that is someone who will vote for you. It needs to be someone you trust and someone who is also a registered local elector who also has the necessary photo ID. So um, uh, you can apply for a proxy vote again up to 5 p.m. on the 25th of April. Or if you're near Broadgate House, which is by the station, um, you can just pop into the council building there and someone will help you. Uh, It's a fairly quick process, apparently. Uh, Or we'll help you to do it here as well, or do it online. Uh, You will need your national insurance number in any case. They're also uh, trying to get that service into each of the 14 local libraries around the city, though it isn't in place yet, though hopefully, if not for this election, then it will be for subsequent elections. Uh, And finally, if you haven't registered to vote at all, you have until 5pm on the 17th of April to do so. So that's quite a lot of information. Um, If you need us to help with any of it, just let us know. Yeah, so that's that. Okay, Uh, now just to point out that the list for the coronation afternoon tea on Friday the 5th of May is still open. We've got plenty of names on it, so it should be uh, a lot of fun. We're going to do that in the Boston Lodge Lounge um, and uh, get it decorated all up and, you know... Hey, if the weather's gorgeous, you know, we might be out in the garden. Who knows? We'll see. Um... Uh, if you don't come into the centre regularly, call 024 7621 to get your name put on that as well. Will uh, there be any thrones to sit on? Um, well, if they do, it'll be me sitting on it. Well, no, I don't think so. I'll be, I'll be in the kitchen making tea. Um, uh, uh, no, you'll, you'll just have a modest chair. And only one person gets a throne at Coronation Weekend, I think, and uh, it wouldn't be fair if it was uh, anyone here. Um... And of course, before all of that, we have our Charity Shop Spring Event, which takes place on Saturday the 1st of April. Um, We're saying, don't be an April fool. Come and gab your bargains here at the Charity Shop at Boston Lodge. Uh, It's going large in the car park again. I've seen what June has got, and there's a lot of really nice stuff, uh, all at bargain prices. And a lot of it is new. And a lot of it is brand new. Yes. I picked up a really nice mirror today mm. so uh, I'm very, which I'm very pleased about and uh, excellent stuff. So uh, that's it for this week. Um, I'll be back with you next. All being well. Mm. Thank you very much. And now over to Sarah with this week's sport. Outlook Sport.
And welcome to the wonderful world of sport with Sarah, as usual, and a slightly purring pussycat to my right, so apologies. Now, Coventry City headed back up north after drawing midweek with Wigan. I don't know, they might as well have stayed up there and saved on the petrol. Anyway, before this match, we were on a run of eight unbeaten. But would Blackpool, our opponents, be our downfall? Well, we scored first after 19 minutes, to be precise, with his first goal of the season and marking his 100th appearance for the club. Great goal by Ben Sheaf. But unfortunately, we gave away a penalty shortly before half-time. And we look to be going in at one all at half time. However, shortly before the half time whistle, Gustavo Hamer scored a magnificent bend it like Beckham goal from the corner. It slightly deflected off an opponent, but apart from that, it was a perfect bend it like Beckham. Straight into the goal mouth. Now, for, for people who don't know what I'm talking about, normally a corner kick is a two-person effort. One person kicks from the corner and into the goal mouth area and then somebody else tries to head it or kick it in. But when you bend it like Beckham, your kick from the corner is like a sort of C-shape. So it curves out, but then you put such spin on it that it curves in. Goal, 2-1 at half-time. Now, I was slightly late going back to the second half. I think I was feeding the cats. And when I switched back on, it was 3-1 to Coventry, thanks to what CWR described as a screamer of a goal from Carmack Fadsey. And not long afterwards, Matthew and Gordon made it 4-1 with his sixth of the season. Wow, wow, wow. We are now on a run of nine unbeaten, which is a record which has stood for quite a long time in Coventry. But we now go into an international break whilst all our top players play for their clubs in the European qualifiers. So let's hope when they come back from this break, the same doesn't happen as happened with the World Cup break. Although this only is one week and the next home match, well, the next match is Coventry versus Stoke at the CBS Arena on April the 1st. And now I'm pleased to say I'm with somebody who was actually at the Blackpool match. Mr Guy Rawson, known to many of you as the bus man, I'm sure, from the centre. So, Guy, tell me, what was it like to be there? Because the noise and the atmosphere was tremendous on the radio. Yeah, well, it was absolutely fantastic to be there. Um, the atmosphere was brilliant, as always. Uh, the Cov supporters, their away support is um, pretty famous, to be fair, uh, for good reason, because they take away good support. And it's always very vociferous and um, 
the uh, the uh, home fans in most cases say what fantastic away support Coventry have. Um, you know, mo- most other teams acknowledge that, uh, and it's absolutely true. And they are indeed the twelfth man for Coventry. And what was it like when that third and then fourth goal went in? Well, it was. Uh, it, Almost a relief in a way, because, yes. uh, you know, when you're only 2-1 up, there's always a chance for the opposition to get back. So yeah. uh, when the third one went in, it's delight and relief. And then when the fourth went in, that was it. It was uh, good night, really. Now, the last time and only time I've been to Blackpool to watch an away match, mm. it was an open stand and we were sitting on literally wooden benches. Has it improved since they had their season in the Premier well, since the days of Stanley Matthews, yes, they have improved it a little bit. It is now covered, um, but uh, this ha- was only about ten years ago. All right, I'll, I'll let you off. I'll <laughs> let you off. But uh, yeah, it is covered now. The the, the stand that the away fans go in, but um, we uh, did have to use portaloos, which I don't know if they've got plans to have anything a bit more posh. But uh, it was uh, yeah, it was a bit sort of um, what's the word? Uh, down market, shall yes. we say, yes. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it didn't spoil a great day. And while you were at Blackpool, did you manage to actually see anything of Blackpool? I did. I saw um, quite a bit of it. I saw the front. Uh, it, I've got to be honest, it's not my sort of place. Mm-hmm. It's not everyone's cup of tea. Um, I prefer more sort of countryfied places. And uh, I do like doing a bit of bird watching. And I was fortunate enough to see a murmuration of starlings by the pier in Blackpool. Thousands and thousands of starlings coming in in a big swirling cloud. So uh, that was uh, sort of like uh, the cherry on the cake, really. Wow. Yeah. So it was very nice. Thank you so much there, Guy. And I'll leave you to get on with planning your transport for the week. Okay, thank you. Now, I do just want to say I loved this commentator's comment. Oh, he's going to pass it. Oh, no, he's shot himself. Well, I've heard of desperate measures when you don't get a goal. But really? Shooting yourself? Anyway, moving on to the ovoid ball. Coventry Rugby Club took on Cody at Butts Park. Now, they'd met Cody previously when in the lower division. But it's Cody's first season in the championship, which is the second highest league. But Coventry absolutely trounced them with a 48 points to 19 victory. And this included Coventry's 100th try of the season. So, well done boys. Now going back to the spherical shaped ball. Leamington were away to Peterborough Sport. But unfortunately lost 3-0. Now, this leaves Leamington just hovering above the relegation zone. So, fingers crossed for better results, Leamington. Perhaps you could learn from Stratford, who were away to Old Church and had their first away victory since October with a 2-0 win. Well done. Hence the commentator to make the remark, The great escape is on. Well, it's probably a little bit soon to say that, but let's hope the Bears are going to finish with a push. 
but sadly Nuneaton who were at the top of that of their division well not quite at the top they're third with two automatic promotion points and the next few going into playoffs they took on Colville but sadly Colville scored in the 90th minute and won the match 1-0 now going right down to the conference leagues four seems to have been a a number for the Coventry teams or the Coventry area teams. Rugby Town were away to Oadby and drew 4-4. Racing Club Warwick were at home to Worcester City and won 4-1. And yes, folks, Worcester were the team that put the great Sky Blues out of the FA Cup a few seasons back. Moving on quickly, and then Ainsbury Rovers entertained Coventry United, but were on the wrong end of a 4-0 defeat. So well done, Coventry United. But sadly, Coventry United women lost 4-1 to Charlton Athletic. Well, I'm sorry, ladies, but you really are now getting adrift of the rest of your teams in your division. Now, last week, you may remember, I came back in for a second bite of the cherry to update you on the Indian Wells tennis. Well, I need to bother because both players were out the following day. Anyway, Jack Draper, who beat Sir Andy Murray then had to withdraw injured when playing the the now world number one, Alcaraz. However, I have to say, Alcaraz went on to win the tournament. So, you know, it's one of them things. But unfortunately, his injury is a stomach muscle pull, which isn't the easiest for a tennis player to overcome. Because when you think of the way they throw the ball up to serve and absolutely smash it down, they are stretching their stomachs the whole time. And I read this week that he's had that Jack's had to withdraw from the Miami Open because of the injury. Oh dear. Anyway, let's hope you're fit for Wimbledon and of course the French, which is before Wimbledon. And Emma Raducanu lost in straight sets to the world number one, who herself lost to the eventual winner in the semi-finals. Oh, and by the way, Emma Raducanu is too busy to play for Great Britain in the Billie Jean Cup at the um, CBS Arena. No comment. Now, cricket, they seem to have put away their pyjamas and flannels for now. Both the men and women, that is. Although I suspect and I think I know that a lot of them are now really ranking up the dollar signs playing in the Indian Premier League and in other leagues. And, of course, it's far too cold for them to put on their hairs outdoors here, yet it's also, should I suggest, 
probably getting a bit flooded in some areas. Hmm. Now, I just want to mention a new website that's been launched by the British Paralympic Movement, but it's aimed at grassroots want-to-have-a-goers. It's called Everybody Moves, and the aim is to match people with impairments, people with disabilities, you know, people like you and me, with a sports club in their area. So, if you're interested, put it into Google. Everybody moves. Oh, and other search engines do exist. She says quickly to cover her back. And finally, now you may remember last week I told you that Great Britain has a water polo team. Well, I've also found out that we have another team that doesn't immediately spring to mind as a national sport. We have a baseball team. Now, I personally am not really sure of the difference between baseball and rounders, other than the baseball teams wear a hard helmet and a sort of mask over the face. Anyway, we have qualified for the 2026 World Championships by beating, drumroll, Colombia. We were hammered by America and lost narrowly to Mexico, but by beating Colombia and results elsewhere, we have qualified. Hmm, not sure. That doesn't, like I said with water polo, float my boat, but it might do yours. Anyway, that has been your sport for this week, brought to you by Sarah and Emily, the purring cat. Bye. Thank you, Sarah. And now we go over to Dave with your post bag. This is post bag. Join in the discussion. Hello and welcome to your post bag this week. First of all, get well soon to Julia, who was unable to go to a computer stroke English class with her friend John to do her report for post bag. We do appreciate that, but please get well soon. And that goes to Rosie too, who headlines post bag this week with comments about favourite radio stations of hers. Hello everyone, it's Rosie Brady here. I haven't spoken to you for a long time, and this is in response to David's message about the radio and what we like on the radio. Um, Personally, I just love Radio 4. Uh, Switch it on first thing in the morning, keeps me awake, and then I have different programs on all day. Uh, That's when I'm not at the resource centre. I absolutely love investigative programs, like File on 4 and Moneybox, and then Paul Lewis in touch on a Tuesday evening. Um, I love the Archers. I follow it avidly. I like all the programs that are on anything that is of interest. I do listen to Woman's Hour, but sometimes it gets a bit much, so I turn off. Um, But most of the other programs I've been listening to since I was a little girl when it was the home service, and I used to listen to it with my dad. Uh, He liked listening to the opera singers and things, 
um, John McCormack and the name Josephine somebody. Um, but yes, I love Radio 4. Um, that's about all the news I've got. I just wanted you all to know, I want to convert some of you to Radio 4. Okay, lovely talking to you, and I hope to see you soon. I'm recovering from an op at the moment, but I'm hoping to be back into the centre very soon. All the best. Bye. Thank you so much, Rosie. It's lovely to hear from you. Please keep talking to us in postbag. It's your spot as well. I find that once I switch onto something on Radio 4, I want to keep listening to it. Like a walk across the countryside in early morning, pointing out fascinating places and facts. Uh, to that lovely music sailing by that introduces the shipping forecast. And the clothes down where they play the national anthem. Who else does that these days? Graham likes Outlook, but says, bring back the What's On guide. Well, we were asked if what we would like to have put on the tape, on the, uh, well, it's not a tape these days, on the magazine. Um, well, I haven't got any new suggestions. My suggestion is an old one. I really do miss Sue Parker's What's On guide. We've given no information of what entertainment's on in the area. How we meant to find out about it, I don't know. And uh, I used to enjoy that. And uh, it would fall in line with the remit which you're supposed to be providing. So that is my suggestion. Bring back the What's On Guide. Well, the duty of a talking newspaper is to let visually impaired people know what's going on in their area. Let us know if you miss the What's On Guide. I find it helpful to have the information, the same information, repeated week after week because I've just put my name down with Heather for the Coronation Garden Party on the Friday at the Resource Centre after hearing about it from Hugh on Outlook for perhaps the third time. Since Sheila had a stroke and slept downstairs, I have a radio, a CD player with relaxation CDs on it and a teddy bear for company at night. So I won the teddy in a raffle at a retinitis pigment toaster party. I think it was the one at Edwina's house, the garden party. But here's Edwina with a tip to help you calm down. Hi everybody, it's Edwina. This is a little tip to help you if you're possibly um, very distressed about something or tired or not very well at all. It is to do with your breathing. If you are very anxious, you can actually help yourself by doing a certain session of breathing and that is to take a deep breath and hold it and slowly let it out if you do that ten times it will clear your mind and make you feel calm again I heard this particular tip from one of my cousins in, a, in Oxfordshire. She was very ill and very distressed in hospital 
and it was a nurse that told her to do the ten deep breaths. So it's worth trying. I thought I'd pass on the tip. Bye, everybody. And breathing is exactly what former world champion heavyweight boxer Frank Bruno recommended when I interviewed him once. What's your philosophy in life? Uh, uh, keeping breathing, up? getting up every day, breathing, you know what I mean? And then the rest will come naturally, just go, go with the flow, you know? That's the important thing today is getting up every single day, breathing, man. That's the most important thing. And if you have any tips on relieving stress, please tell your fellow listeners. Janet of the Monday Club said how nice it was to hear from Edwina again. Well, Edwina being deafblind needs a bit of help recording messages for postbags so I normally go round the house and record them, which is not always been possible for various reasons. Doreen Hilton has a very kind observation on the way I kept postbag going while caring for Sheila. Hello, this is um, Doreen Hilton here speaking again. Um, I like to say about Dave and Sheila, his wife, what a splendid um, thing he did all the time his wife was poorly. He did very, very well and he kept up his work very, very well too. Uh, although he had his wife really poorly, but as it comes to, I think it was a wonderful, splendid job he does, and I hope he will keep it up for our future. And we must all send in our details to post back, and it will keep him in trim. Bye all, Doreen Hilton. Well, thank you, Doreen. Sheila used to ask me, have you done postbag? I did as much as I could when the carers were looking after Sheila and after settling down Sheila for the night. And I did the finishing touches to the script by her side. After I'd written postbag, I read it out as she was listening to me in a hospital bed downstairs. I remember her laughing as I read out a report from Julia, which was delightful. It helped a lot that you kept me going with messages, so it made it quite easy for me to link the pieces together, so it enabled me to spend more time caring for Sheila. It also kept us in touch with people who care about us and vice versa. You really have been there for us through the good times and the bad over the last 40 years. Thank you so much. I was delighted to hear from Sarah in Postbag recently about audio bus announcements that don't always talk to you. Here's Graham Whale to respond. Regarding Sarah Lewis's problem of the lack of stop announcements on the buses, uh, first of all, they've only got 80 buses in Coventry at the moment with uh, visual and audio stop announcements, uh, the platinum vehicles as they call them, uh, about 20 diesel and 60 electric, which I would think are on the 11 quite plentiful these days, which I think is a route which Sarah would use, vaguely knowing where about she lives. I would try not to get into conflict with the driver if I was you. You need to go to the source of the batter. Uh, what I would do, I think, is keep a log. Keep a log of all the journeys you made and found that the stop announcements are not working. 
uh, ideally you should include the bus fleet number but you probably can't see that so as long as you're pretty sure what the time was um, then you know put it down on a list and probably at the end of the month submit the list to National Express and make sure you want to raise the issue as a complaint otherwise they regard it as just information and you don't hear any more about it but I have the same experience I go on buses which should have the stop announcements which are not working and National Express say that they can't the drivers can't tamper with them they can't t turn them off but I've got a suspicion that they do if they find them annoying so that's what I would do anyway uh, keep a list and every so often submit a list and make sure that it gets home to to the person who it needs to get home to, make sure they know that you're raising the issue as a formal complaint. That may or may not help, but I, I know exactly how you feel, and it's, it's frustrating. Thank you, Graham. I had a lovely chat over a cup of tea with Sarah, and she said she was hoping that you would bring it up at one of the transport user group meetings that you belong to. So let's see if we can sort this one out. Uh, and like Graham, I wouldn't recommend confrontation with the driver. I was criticising a taxi firm once, but personally, I thought the driver was being a bit uber-sensitive. But, um, uh, thanks for your messages this week. Let's. There's lots of ways in which you can send messages into Postbag. There's that number where you ring the Resource Centre on 024-76-717-522 and press 5 for Coventry Talking Newspaper and leave a message like Graham and Rosie did this week. And my phone number that Doreen rings me up on a chip for a chat and to record a message is 024-76-598-484. And Sarah sent me voicemails to me at, on davidmonks at hotmail.com or you can send a letter perhaps however you do it it's lovely to hear from you so lots of things to discuss and please let's hear from you next time bye for now this is Outlook you can contact Postbag our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk join in the discussion on Postbag thanks as ever Dave for your Postbag and now we have Margaret telling us about the origin of the Herbert, our art gallery and museum. Known these days simply as the Herbert, this was the first post-war museum and art gallery built in Britain. It was originally intended to stand on the opposite side of Bailey Lane, using a £100,000 gift from Sir Alfred Herbert for its construction. But the first stage of the museum was stopped by the war. Its base became a public toilet and that now forms the basement of Draper's Bar. When a larger area became available due to bombing and clearance, new plans were drawn up in 1952 by the architects Albert Herbert and Son, Sir Alfred's cousin. In May 1954, the foundation stone was laid by Sir Alfred Herbert, who donated a further £100,000 to the project. 
Sir Alfred died in May 1957 and the Museum and Art Gallery that bears his name was opened on the 9th of March 1960. In 2008, it reopened as the Herbert after a £14 million council-led refurbishment with an extension designed by Pringles, Richards and Sharrett, which houses the archives and local studies sections. The most striking part of the extension is the glass gallery, described as an exposed Glulam grid shell. It was inspired by the roof structure of Spence's Cathedral opposite. This trust-led building now has limited opening. It's inspiring to know that Coventry had the first post-war gallery and museum after the devastation of the war years. Next, Sheila gives us some advice on what to keep in our fridge and what not to. To chew or not to chew is a perennial question. With everything from ketchup to eggs, bread to jam and tomatoes to salad cream subject to strongly held opinions. Even scientists don't always know where they stand on the debate of what to put in the fridge. The Food Standards Agency recently revised its own advice about keeping potatoes out of the fridge. For years, it was believed that chilling them would lead to the production of acrylamide, a chemical that is thought to increase the risk of cancer. Now it turns out putting them in the fridge is perfectly safe. So which items from the weekly shop should go in the fridge and where should we keep the rest? Food waste expert Kate Hall, founder of the Full Freezer website, said a full fridge is more efficient than an empty one. This is because the more items you have in your fridge, the less the cooling mechanism has to work. The foods themselves become cold and act as coolants, keeping everything around them chilled. If your fridge is looking a bit empty, experts suggest storing a few jugs of cold water inside in order to keep the ambient temperature down. But that doesn't mean stuffing it so full that something falls out every time you open the door. Air needs to circulate, so it's best to aim for two-thirds to three-quarters full. Most of us keep salad items in the drawers at the bottom of the fridge and fruit in a bowl on the worktop. Wrong, say the experts, who recommend that tomatoes and cucumbers can in fact be kept at room temperature the same as they are in the supermarket. Dietitian Duane Mellot explains that they are prone to chilling or cold damage. Although they are harvested, they are still alive and the cells can break down when exposed to cold, affecting the flavour and texture. The same applies to peppers and aubergines. Both thrive for three to seven days at room temperature. In the fridge, the cold can make them go soft. Most fruit, on the other hand, is better off being refrigerated. It is best to keep berries, citrus fruit and apples in the fridge, advises Dr. Meller. He explains that low temperatures and low oxygen levels, which limit the production of ripening gas ethylene, keep fruit fresher for longer. But bananas shouldn't be kept in the fridge, they turn black. If left close to other fruit, bananas release ethylene, which causes ripening, says Dr. Meller. Condiments are a controversial subject, but the experts agree. Ketchup doesn't need to be kept in the fridge, along with brown sauce, mint sauce, mango chutney, soy sauce, hot sauce, Worcester sauce, pickles, jarred olives, jam, honey and vinegar. 
That is because the ingredients act as natural preservatives. Ketchup, for example, is very high in sugar and vinegar. If something is acidic, as many sources are, or high in sugar, it means water is not available to bacteria and moulds that might spoil them. According to a witch report in 2020, even if these condiments have been opened, they still don't need to be refrigerated. The same, however, doesn't apply to mayonnaise, salad cream, tartar sauce, red currant jelly, pesto or maple syrup, all of which benefit from fridge temperatures. This is because they feature less sugar and in many cases contain dairy, which must be chilled to prevent the growth of listeria. Mayonnaise should be kept in the fridge door because if it gets too cold, the oil will separate out. Experts say the optimum temperature of a household fridge is between 0 and 4 degrees. This is cold enough to restrict the growth of bacteria, which can lead to spoilage and foodborne illnesses. Any colder, and there's a risk that the water inside the food will turn to ice. Ice crystals can form inside the cells which make up the fruits and vegetables, and this can lead to becoming mushy. Different parts of the fridge are at different temperatures. This is to do with the distance from the coiling cord at the bottom and the door. The coldest part is at the bottom, followed by the drawers in the middle shelf and then the top shelf. I know nuts have a long shelf life, but as soon as you tear them open, they should start to, they start to rot and should be kept in the fridge. Studies show that we open the fridge up to 42 times a day, a habit which accounts for up to a quarter of its total energy usage. When unloading the weekly shop, is it better to leave the fridge door open or only open it when you need to put something inside? The agreement seems to be it's better to just open it when you want to put something inside. But don't worry if you do leave it open for a while. Your fridge can stay open for up to four hours before food starts to go off. Although it's tempting to tidy leftovers as soon as you've finished dinner, you should let them cool down for two hours before putting them in the fridge. This applies for everything except rice ditch dishes, which are especially prone to growth of toxins. So they should only be kept for about an hour before they're chilled. Putting hot food in a cold fridge is a bad idea because it will raise the temperature of everything around it. Leftovers should be kept on the top shelf as far away from possible as raw meat, which should be stored on the bottom shelf so it doesn't drip onto other foods. Things like half-eaten tins of baked beans and soup shouldn't be refrigerated in their original packaging. The metal can oxidise them, so decamp them into something else. Dairy products usually go in the fridge, although butter can be kept out for up to a week without spoiling. Hard cheeses can also be kept out. Eggs can be kept unchilled as long as the kitchen isn't too humid. Things like vegetables such as carrots, parsnips and turnips fare well out of the fridge, but they too can be kept out. Things like onions and garlic should be kept in a dark, well-ventilated cupboard to stop going soft or rotten, and that mimics the soil conditions in which they grow. An open pot of bicarbonate of soda is said to purify the circulating air in your fridge. But now we can put potatoes back in the fridge, the simpler method is to simply peel a whole potato and place it on the middle shelf. The starchy flesh sucks out the bad odours out of the air and makes your fridge smell fresher. Change it every two or three days until any bad smell goes away. Everything you could ever wish to know about the use of a fridge. I've been looking into mine with new eyes. Ali speaks to us in confidence now. She describes life with her ideal man.
I've made no secret of my desire for this man. Paul Metcalf, also known as Captain Scarlet. I've always loved him from the first time I clapped eyes on him when I was a young girl. There's something about him that used to make my heart race, and that voice of his could melt ice. Captain Scarlet was the stuff dreams were made of. His perfect skin, blue eyes, jet black hair, and those lips I used to dream about kissing. So what was it about this mini-marvel that made my growing up years so special? Well, for a start, I always used to imagine myself as Mrs. Scarlet. I was a former angel who settled down with him to a life of domestic bliss. And while he was off saving the world from the clutches of the dastardly Mr. Rons, I'd be waiting at home for him to mop his brow and scrub his back when lying in a well-owned bath after a long day of saving the earth. He might have been a special agent, but to me, he was perfect and normal. He might have been indestructible. God knows he would have needed that if he was still rely on my cooking. But he was still a man and I was merely Mrs. Metcalf. His Cary Grant-like voice, his square jaw and perfect physique. I wonder if Jerry Anderson knew what he was doing, inflicting so much manhood onto an unsuspecting world of adoring females. Well, the angels were created for the boys to lust after. Captain Scarlet and Captain Blue, also known as Adam Svensson, were the eye candy for the girls. Forty years later, I've still got a crush on this man with the wooden hands. I used to imagine being whisked off for romantic weekends in the country, just as plain Mr and Mrs Metcalf. The other boarders in the B&B didn't know that the man in room 17 had just saved the earth from being blown up by Spectrum's arch-enemies. Oh yes, away from Spectrum, Captain Scarlet had a whole new life with me. We lived in a rambling cottage on an equally rambling estate in the country. Cotswolds, I think. We had a black Labrador dog and a King Charles Spaniel. We'd several cats and two horses. Paul and I would go for long walks in the country, and if the weather was nice, we'd take a picnic, which would always end up with us lying on the blanket on the ground, in each other's arms, looking up at the sky and making plans for the future. Yes, his life from Spectrum was a whole different world. But then there would be the time I would dread. Something about his person would start to vibrate and I just knew it would be work calling back to cloud base. That's why our weekends together were so precious because they didn't happen very often. How could they? He belonged to the world and I was merely just a tiny part of his world. Our front doorbell was the only giveaway to his secret life and service as it would chime the seven notes of spectrum. It would always end up as a tearful goodbye when he was called into work, and I would always think that this might be the last time I saw him. What if the Mr. Ons had found some way of reversing his indestructibility? 
What if life with Mrs. M in the country was getting dull for him, and he fancied going off with one of the more glamorous angels? What if he were to fall for a beautiful, enchanting alien, and decide he wanted to try life on another planet? Yes, these dreams were real of mine as a young girl growing up, and many a daydream they've been part of. Now when I see the good captain on television, I often think about the life he had that nobody knew about with me. All those many years ago. And I wonder whether or not he'd have been happy with his double life. Who will ever know? I am flesh and blood and living in the real world. He is plastic and wood and living in comic books and TV supermarination programmes. And he has a new legion of fans following. Now he's been revamped and brought up to date. I thought I was sad to lust after a man I knew didn't really exist and for whom I had created a whole new life for. But when I was told that a friend of my husband's, who's in her late fifties, still has a poster of Virgil Tracy on her bedroom wall, then I didn't feel so bad about nabbing Captain Scarlet for myself, for my own fantasy or two. He may be just a puppet, but he knew how to tug on my heartstrings. Well, I never fell for a puppet on TV. My heartthrob appeared on the silver screen at the Saturday morning cinema, or the pictures as we used to call it then. Flash Gordon, who regularly saved the world from the evil Emperor Ming the Merciless. He did have a girlfriend, but strangely I can't remember her name. Now another sortie into the fictional world. We have part two of Sue's piece about Just William. As a result of all the mayhem William regularly inflicts, his father becomes convinced his youngest offspring is mad, stark, raving, insane. He tells his wife, you ought to take him to a doctor and get his brain examined. His mother is more sympathetic. Boys are such funny things, she observes. William, meanwhile, constantly struggles to make sense of the confusing adult world around him and all its hypocrisy and pomposity. In a subtle way, he is a subversive figure who challenges authority, says McVeigh. He points out the flaws in adults' behaviour. But it's the comedy in the Just William book that stands out most. There's a mixture of farce and slapstick, but there's also a very subtle social comedy and satire, McVeigh continues. And the way Crompton uses vocabulary. Some fans have said she can write a one-liner and capture something in it that is so true about life and human nature. Richmond Crompton Lamburn, to use her full name, was born in Bury, Lancashire, in 1890. After studying at Royal Holloway College in Surrey, she took up a job teaching classics at Bromley High School in Kent and lived in the Kent suburbs the rest of her life. In 1923, she contracted polio during a holiday in Norfolk, a disease that almost killed her. As McVeigh explains in her book, Richmore Crompton, A Literary Life, until the end of her life, she was unable to walk unaided and always needed someone's arm or her stick when she was out. 
From then on, Crompton concentrated on her writing, producing a huge body of work, including 50 or so works of adult fiction, in addition to the 38 William books. Despite celebrating his 100th anniversary, William will forever be 11 years old. Even the characters he shares his stories with refuse to age. But the politics and global events of the 20th century inevitably encroach on this fictitious world. There are tales set against the Second World War, the Blitz, the arrival of television and even the space race. Fashions and slang develop over time. The 1965 book, William and the Pop Singers, is a clear reference to the Beatles. Like much vintage fiction, some of Crompton's stories jar with the modern reader. One, entitled William and the Nasties, from a 1935 collection, has been withdrawn from reprints because of anti-Semitic references. Crompton later came to regret it, McVeigh explains. But one has to acknowledge that some of the ways she writes would not be acceptable today. While the books alone were norm enormously popular, the adaptation of Just William for radio, television and film have helped ensure this naughty schoolboy will forever be remembered in post-war British culture. By 1946, the BBC radio plays, many of them written by Crompton herself, were enjoying an audience of nine million. There were several films, the first, Just William, released in 1940. But it was the various television and radio series that have continued to attract new generations of fans. The first aired in the 1950s. There were two series in the 1960s, one starring Dennis Waterman, who would later appear in The Sweeney and Minder. Further series aired in the 1970s, 1990s and 2010s. More recently, the actor Martin Jarvis narrated the stories for BBC Radio 4, helping introduce them to yet another generation. Indeed, William Brown became such a successful character in Crompton's lifetime that she admitted she ended up being controlled by him. He was my puppet, I pulled the strings, she once wrote. But gradually the tables have been turned. I am his puppet, he pulls the strings. Like all characters who have been overindulged by their authors, he insists on having his own way. In January 1969, shortly before the publication of her final William book, William the Lawless, Crompton died in a Kent hospital. But today, a century after he first appeared, her most famous creation is still very much alive. As McVeigh says of William, his spirit lives on, as fans from the UK and abroad continue to read his stories throughout their lives, and other readers recognise him as a cultural icon. Will children still be reading about William in another hundred years' time? McVeigh thinks not. Perhaps they will read about a fantastical boy or girl who lives in a space or who is a digital avatar. Then again, I wouldn't be surprised if they bore very similar characteristics to William.
Sue there reminding us of the perennial appeal of William Brown, forever mischievous schoolboy. To my mind, nothing beats the novels being read aloud on radio or audio books by the actor Martin Jarvis. Lastly today, here is Keith telling us about Sir John Moores, who pioneered the business of betting on the outcome of football games, known as the pools. Three cable and wireless messenger boys sat in their Manchester office after hours when the machines were quiet and their managers were in the pub to discuss how they could make their fortunes from the post-First World War booms in football and gambling. It was the birth of the Littlewoods Pools Empire, launched a hundred years ago this week. A newfound economic prosperity had by then expanded the beautiful game into the world's greatest sport. Yet the three young men felt only club management and big sponsors were making a killing from huge gates at stadia around the country. They were John Moores, 27, from a family of bricklayers and publicans, and his workmates Colin Ascombe and Bill Hughes. Moores had already heard about a football pool devised by Birmingham's John Jervis Barnard, in which punters bet on the outcome of football matches. Payouts came from the pool of money bet, less 10% to cover management costs, but it had failed to properly take off, and the trio decided they could do better. Their bosses, the commercial cable company, banned outside employment, so they could not use their names in the title. But Ascombe, raised by his aunt, had been born a Littlewood, so they took that as the title. Each invested £50, a huge sum for an unproven venture. Moores later recalled, As I signed my own cheque at the bank, my hands were damp. It seemed such a lot of money to be risking. The friends rented a small office in Church Street, Liverpool, and his discreet local printer rolled out the first coupons. Moores distributed them outside Manchester United's Old Trafford before one Saturday match, with the help of a few boys who were paid just pennies. Of the 4,000 coupons, just 35 were returned, with bets totalling £4, 7 shillings and sixpence. The 10% deducted did not even cover the three men's travelling and printing expenses. Undeterred, they printed another 10,000 coupons and took them to a match in Hull. This time, just one was returned. The trio kept pumping money into the business, but midway through the 1924-25 season, it was still making a loss. So Hughes and Ascombe decided to quit with Moores paying the £200 each they had invested for their shares in the business. Moores was encouraged by his wife, who told him, I would rather be married to a man who is haunted by failure than one haunted by regret. And Moores already had something of a track record as an entrepreneur and risk-taker. Born in January 1896 in his grandfather's pub, the Church Inn in Eccles, Lancashire, his bricklayer father became a site foreman. 
but he took to drink and died of TB in 1918. Leaving school at 13, John became a messenger boy at the Manchester Post Office, but was sacked for talking back to his superior. However, a course in telegraphy would would allow him to join the commercial cable company. Although in a reserved occupation, he still volunteered for the Navy in 1917 as a wireless operator. After the war, he returned to the commercial cable company and in 1920 was posted to their transatlantic Transatlantic nerve centre in Waterville, County Kerry, Ireland. He complained about the food and was elected to run the mess committee. He set up the Waterville Supply Company to order food from various suppliers instead of just one, reducing costs and raising quality. He never paid for his own meals. Moores also noticed that there was no local public library, so he set up a store that sold books and stationery, importing in bulk from Britain and Dublin, and also sold golf balls, as there was no nearby sports shop. He made £1,000 in 18 months from both his salary and his business dealings. In May 1922, Moores was posted back to Liverpool and then to Manchester with money in his pocket. Having paid off his two partners, Moores enlisted the help of his younger brother Cecil, along with the rest of his family, to run Littlewood's Pools. In 1927, he gave up working for the cable company, but just two years later, he was prosecuted and convicted under the Ready Money Betting Act of 1920. As his company never accepted cash, only postal orders that were cashed after the football results and the winning payout had been confirmed, his appeal was upheld. In 1928, Cecil Moores devised a security system to prevent cheating, and the business really took off. By the end of the decade, John was a millionaire. In January 1932, Moores disengaged himself from the pools to set up Littlewood's mail-order store, based on the small-scale network he had created in Waterford. Turnover rose from £100,000 at the end of the first year to £4 million in 1936. Part of that was due to the enormous mailing list which the pools had built up. But Moores also understood the needs of poorer families during the Depression years. He offered cheap household goods and clothing on the tally. He opened the first Littlewoods department store in Blackpool in 1937. By 1952, there were more than 50 across the UK. During the Second World War, the firm became adept at making parachutes, barrage balloons, aircraft parts and landing craft used on D-Day. They became trade leaders in making compact transportable kits containing dismantled vehicles that could be reassembled overseas. And they also made Pacific packs containing rations for soldiers in the Far East. Post-war, the betting division grew into the world's biggest football pools business and was the first sponsor of the FA Cup. 
In March 1960, Moores gave up his chairmanship, handing over to Brother Cecil, so he could become a director and then chairman of Everton FC, having lent the club £50,000 interest-free to buy new players. In April 1961, he famously sacked Everton manager Johnny Carey in the back of a black London taxi and appointed Harry Catterick in his place. In 1965, Moores resigned due to the poor health of his wife, who died of cancer six weeks later, but he returned as chairman for a year from August 1972. Having already been made a freeman of the city of Liverpool in October 1980, he was knighted by the future King Charles. In 1992, Liverpool Polytechnic took the name Liverpool John Moores University after it gained university status. Sir John Moores died in his Formby home in 1993, aged 97. A memorial service in Liverpool's Anglican Cathedral was attended by 2,000 people, most of them Littlewoods employees. His estate, worth £1.7 billion, was left to his children and other family members. Keith there with memories of Littlewoods pools and later Littlewoods mail order service with its shiny catalogues. And that brings us to the end of this edition of Outlook. Brought to you this week by me, Stella Roberts. Engineering was by John Bennett and Outlook will be back next week. And don't forget to put your clocks on an hour on Saturday night, the 25th, because it's the beginning of British summertime.